Well, we saw the ultimate in conspiracy theories come to life last week at the U.S. Capitol building. Good thing we had the foresight to start this arc on why and how people should care about these things, because who would have seen an attempted coup coming when Congress was going to certify the vote in this election? Oh, everyone except the Capitol Police? Yeah, we thought so. And we digress. Today, we are bringing you an enlightening conversation with Professor Karen Douglas, a social psychologist specializing in the study of conspiracy theories. We'll talk about what they are, what makes people vulnerable to them, and what, if anything, we can do about the people who believe in them. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. We need to dive into this conversation because there is so much that has happened in the United States this week alone that makes me super thrilled to be talking with you. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Of course. I'm Karen Douglas, and I'm a professor of social psychology at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. In the United States, especially with what we saw this week, we are seeing both the culmination of the belief in various conspiracy theories. You know, there's a huge conspiracy theory about the U.S. election being stolen or rigged. And those who believe in it would say that that is the truth. And anybody who doesn't believe that is blind and naive. There are also the possibility of not just conspiracy theories, but a potential conspiracy, you know, that people are starting to wonder about why did the police take so long to respond? You know, and in the past, there have been real conspiracies like the tobacco industry, which lied for so long about the health of its product. So I would love to start this conversation by talking a little bit about what are conspiracy theories and what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and critical thinking and how do we differentiate between all of these things? Yeah, well, it is very complex and very, very tricky. And I mean, I guess a conspiracy theory can generally be defined as a proposed secret plot, usually conducted by a group of powerful people, again, in secret. And typically they have some kind of malevolent or sinister motive, either to hide something from people or to achieve something for themselves. So if you think about a lot of the conspiracy theories that are floating around at the moment, they usually implicate a group of people who are yeah, doing something behind the scenes, typically not with people's best interests at heart, but with their own interests at heart. And of course, conspiracies do happen and have happened in the past which makes it quite tricky, I guess, for people to be able to, when they come across a conspiracy theory, to determine whether or not this is something that they should believe in based on experiences that they've had in the past or things that have happened in the past. And it's really, really difficult. And of course, as well, it's very, very important to remember that critical thinking and some kind of level of healthy skepticism is always going to be really important. People don't really want to just absorb everything that they hear. They don't want to believe everything that the government tells them or various other groups tell them. So it is a very, very difficult balance sometimes. But with conspiracy theories, and especially some of them that are floating around at the moment, both about the election and coronavirus generally, a key feature of these conspiracy theories is that there is simply no evidence to back them up. There is no evidence. Sometimes the claims are quite 
I guess, radical and out there and simply there is no evidence to support them. And most of the time there is evidence to refute them. So there is no evidence to say that the election is being has been stolen or was rigged in any way. In fact, there may be evidence that completely contradicts those sorts of claims. So that's how we would kind of normally differentiate a conspiracy theory from other forms of, say, critical thinking or healthy scepticism. It's just that sort of incredibility or lack of evidence um, or even solid evidence to, I guess, point in the completely opposite direction. That's my take on it anyway. So have you seen differences in trends recently? And what does that indicate to you, especially, you know, with the ones that you just talked about with there being no evidence Mm -hmm. to support them? Yeah, sure. I think a lot of people ask me whether or not conspiracy theories have changed, especially in recent years with the invention of the internet and social media and all this sort of stuff, different ways of communicating and consuming information. And of course, I think that there are definitely some differences, but at the same time, conspiracy theories have been something that they've basically always been with us. Some people would argue that people are just generally predisposed or hardwired in the brain to have this tendency to believe in conspiracy theories at at one point or another. And I can talk a little bit more about that later on. But yeah, conspiracy theories have always been with us. It's not something that's a brand new thing. It just seems particularly prominent, maybe at this particular time, because there's so much going on. And conspiracy theories do tend to happen when something big like a significant social or political event or some kind of circumstance that people want to explain. When something like this happens, you will always find conspiracy theories. So I think that one reason why we're seeing these now is because we're in in a time where there's several things going on. People are unsure. A lot of the time they're socially isolated and they're looking for explanations of things that are going on around them. But I think that even with some of the past conspiracy theories that you've mentioned, most of the time there's just simply no evidence to support these conspiracy theories. So they stay with people. A lot of the time they these conspiracy theories will go on for years and years and years. Some die off, but then some tend to persist for a long, long time. But a key feature of these conspiracy theories is that the evidence or so-called evidence that people will come up with to support them is simply not true or is not strong enough or isn't supported by science. And so this is the same as what we are seeing now. And I mean, as a social psychologist, it's not really something that I do necessarily to try and establish the truth or falseness of these conspiracy theories. It's more about trying to understand why these alternative narratives appeal to people compared to the information that they read in the news or that they're told by scientists or by governments or whoever. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, really. And I think that that is actually critical because it feels to me, though I could be wrong, but it feels like there are more people believing in conspiracy theories. And so recently, as opposed to before, and with the potential for more dangerous conspiracy theories to be left unchecked. So what makes people more vulnerable to conspiracy theories? You just mentioned this idea of social isolation, and we certainly have seen that with COVID-19 sort of wreaking havoc on the world in 2020. What else is there that makes people vulnerable? 
Well, from a psychological perspective, we would argue that people are attracted to conspiracy theories when they have particular psychological needs that are not being met. They're not being met by typical standard or official explanations that are coming their way. And these psychological needs, they can fall into three categories. And the first one we would call epistemic needs. So these are kind of the need for knowledge and certainty. So when something big and important happens, people don't like to feel uncertain about what's happened. They like to have an explanation that they think is the truth and they like to be certain of that truth. And um, feeling uncertain is a very aversive psychological state. And the second set of needs we would call epistemic needs. And this really relates to people's need for or needs for safety and security, but also autonomy and power, I suppose. And research does suggest that people who feel that they lack these sorts of features, they don't feel safe, they don't feel secure, they don't feel like they have power, tend to be drawn more to conspiracy theories. And finally, well, research suggests that people are attracted to conspiracy theories to satisfy or in an attempt to satisfy social needs. And these really relate to the idea that people just want to feel good about themselves. They want to maintain a positive self-image and also an, a positive image of the groups that they belong to as well. And one of the key features of conspiracy theories is that they're viewed as kind of unique or novel pieces of information that other individuals might not have. So you can fulfill this sort of narcissistic need to, or you maybe you try to sort of fulfill this narcissistic need, try to satisfy this need with this kind of information, because then you feel that you have information, important pieces of the puzzle that other people don't have. So it can make you feel, you know, a whole lot better. So putting those three psychological needs together, I would argue at this particular time, when we have so many things that are going on around us, and you could just think about the coronavirus situation alone, all of these psychological needs are likely to be more threatened at this sort of time. So people, are, they're uncertain. They don't really know what's going on. They're uncertain about a lot of things. They might not feel that they have a lot of power to control the situation that they're in. And yeah, they're kind of socially isolated. A lot of people have been locked into their homes without the contact of other people for a long period of time. So those social needs are not necessarily being met either. And of course, there are going to be individual differences in how people cope with these unmet psychological needs. And some people might be more likely to turn to conspiracy theories than others. But in a time of crisis like this, then I would argue that these psychological needs are particularly frustrated. And so the need that people might have to try and satisfy them, like to, they're looking elsewhere, they're not necessarily looking in the right places and they're turning to conspiracy theories maybe more than they normally would. That's really, really interesting. And when you were talking about this need for safety and security, you know, it occurs to me how in the United States, we don't have a fundamental safety net for most people. You know, there's no fundamental safety net for our health insurance. You know, some people who don't have it get hit by a bus and and will go lose their house or unlike some of these other countries that are successful. So I can see the United States population being more vulnerable than perhaps people of other countries in the world to these theories if that need for safety and security is not being met. 
a question about that idea of knowledge and certainty. How dangerous is it then when people are craving knowledge and certainty to sow the seeds of skepticism around news media being an untrustworthy source of information now? Because that feels like, I don't know if that idea has come around in history, throughout history, but certainly it's a hallmark of this last sort of four years with this idea of fake news and that people can't trust media. And there's all this, quote, censorship on social media platforms and the media platforms that people use are in fact, you know, algorithmically programmed to let people see what they want to see. How does that information, you know, question play into what we're seeing now and this idea of conspiracy theories? Well, I think that, yes, there obviously is a lot of misinformation and fake news floating around. And a lot of that material contains conspiracy theories. And this can be very influential in determining how people think, feel, and also how they behave. So it is true that the information landscape is very complex and people are exposed to conspiracy theories and some are exposed to conspiracy theories more than others. And based on people's preferences and their search behaviours online, some people might be more likely to be exposed to this information than others. So if they've looked up this information in the past, like you say, there are potentially algorithms that are used to sort of point them in the direction of this information again which um, does create an extra layer of complexity because some people who are necessarily inclined toward conspiracy theories in the first place just won't necessarily come across this information, whereas others who are are more likely to come across it, which of course means that when somebody is exposed to a conspiracy theory or a piece of fake news on their social media from a friend of theirs, they're going to differ in terms of their ability to be able to resist this information or accept or reject it. So it's very complicated. And I'm not a tech expert at all, and like at all. And I know that some of the big companies like Facebook and Twitter are banning people who are proliferating conspiracy theories. And we've seen that obviously really, really recently. And also altering algorithms so that people aren't exposed to this information and indeed sort of banning this content or removing this content. So it's happening slowly, but I know that things are happening to try to limit this spread of fake news and conspiracy theories, which can obviously in some instances be quite damaging. Are people aware that they are under the influence of conspiracy theories? That's a difficult question. I think that, well, in terms of some of the research that we've done, it does suggest that people aren't always aware that these conspiracy theories are having an influence on their attitudes. So we ran a study, in fact, the very first study that I was ever involved in on the psychology of conspiracy theories, I was really just interested in how much they influence people's attitudes and whether or not people are actually aware of it. And we found that there these conspiracy theories, and they were about the death of Princess Diana, this was a few years ago, were quite influential and did significantly influence people's attitudes so that they became more inclined toward the conspiracy theory. But we did some sort of comparisons with a baseline control group and found that people when they were kind of asked to think about what their attitudes were before, compared to this other group, they significantly underestimated their, the extent to which their attitudes had changed. So in other words, they had been influenced by the conspiracy theory without necessarily being aware 
that the conspiracy theory had an influence on their attitudes. And this is just a really basic kind of experimental study, which shows this in one very small and isolated setting. But it does suggest that perhaps people might be exposing themselves to this sort of information or being exposed to this information and it's having an effect on their attitudes, but they might not necessarily be fully aware of the extent to which those things are occurring. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's kind of scary, actually, then that people aren't aware that they are being so influenced by these theories that are out there. You know, I want to talk about the dangers of letting that go unchecked. But before we go there, you know, one of the things you had mentioned about the three psychological characteristics of people who are more vulnerable to them remind me a lot about social inequality, the lack of control, the plight of the underrepresented community, certainly in the United States. Have you seen any trends about how conspiracy theories impact underrepresented communities versus those that are in this like majority in society? Yes. Research on these sorts of questions is growing and because they're very, very important questions. Like we do want to know if there are particular groups of people or particular circumstances that are associated with more susceptibility to conspiracy theories, especially when they can be dangerous. And there is some evidence to suggest that minority and disadvantaged groups are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories, which of course makes a lot of sense if you're from a group who has been the subject of victimization or actual conspiracies in the past, then it makes complete sense that you would be inclined to believe in these conspiracy theories perhaps more than others who haven't been subject to those same disadvantages. And it's also the case that people tend to believe conspiracy theories more when it's about their own groups and things that might have happened to them. And this is related to the idea that, again, previous instances of victimization might increase a sense of victimhood generally. So it can kind of this feeling or reliance on conspiracy theories might not just be about isolated incidents that are happening to you and might generalize to conspiracy theories more broadly as well. But I think that more research definitely needs to be done to answer these sorts of important questions, because it's not believing in conspiracy theories, obviously, isn't a one size fits all situation, because all conspiracy theories are different, and all individuals are different and belong to different groups and live in different societies. So yeah, there's still quite a lot to be done. Now, I should say as well that research on the psychology of conspiracy theories is really quite new. It's a really rapidly growing area of research, but it's only really been an area of research in psychology, at least for the last 15 years or so. It's a lot to do. I can only imagine because I'm sure that that is, especially after, you know, even the events of this week, the research and the desire for knowledge around that is going to grow exponentially. So, you know, thinking back to January 6th, I think on that day in the United States, we saw firsthand on some level, like what the actual danger is of letting certain conspiracy theories run wild and be unchecked or even supported by, you know, the highest levels of our government. So I would love to hear you, as Sarah alluded to earlier, talk a little bit about what 
the dangers are when conspiracy theories are left unchecked. Are they, some seem to be very passing and some, as you mentioned, seem to take hold and last for decades. So are they influential enough that we should be concerned? And then, you know, really what's the impact of society once you have these conspiracy, on society rather, once you have these conspiracy theories floating around, and especially if they're left unchecked, you know, we saw them really threaten democracy this week here. Yes, I think that some conspiracy theories can be extremely dangerous. There are plenty of conspiracy theories out there that you know they're just really quite harmless. It doesn't really matter if people think very much about whether or not Elvis is still around or you know worlds run by lizard people and those sorts of things like these real minority views that are often to most people quite trivial. It doesn't really matter if people believe in those sorts of things or not. But of course, and like you say, as we've seen really recently, some conspiracy theories are quite powerful and influential over larger groups of people and often individuals who want to take action on the basis of these conspiracy theories. And and that's what we've seen recently. I think a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol building were QAnon porters And in fact, I saw people carrying QAnon banners, you know, this was just on TV. And so, yeah, some people were prepared to act on this quite nebulous conspiracy theory. And it's, of course, the case for other conspiracy theories as well. There are conspiracy theories about about vaccines, which are, again, are relevant right now as well. And anti-vaccine conspiracy theories or these sort of ideas that... um, pharmaceutical companies and governments are hiding a whole lot of information about uh, vaccine efficacy and safety can significantly influence people's intentions to have themselves or their children vaccinated. And some of our research quite strongly suggests that exposure to these conspiracy theories can significantly influence your decisions, which of course can have very dangerous consequences. If not enough people have a vaccine, then you have a situation where then more people are getting sick and you don't actually get rid of the problem that the vaccine is intended to get rid of. Other things as well, such as like climate change conspiracy theories, if you don't believe in climate change conspiracy theories, some research suggests that you're just not inclined to want to take action to do anything about climate change to try to, I guess, reduce your carbon footprint or take other measures to mitigate the effect of climate change. We've also seen that conspiracy beliefs are associated with prejudice, they're associated with discrimination. So especially in the case of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which are sadly very common, people are often inclined to believe that these sorts of things are true and therefore have hold other negative views towards people of the Jewish faith. And this generalizes to other groups as well and can lead to discrimination We've also found that belief in conspiracy theories is related to criminal behavior. You know, again, unsurprising given the events of recent days. And there's some research that suggests that people who believe in 5G conspiracy theories about the sort of link between 5G and coronavirus want to go out and vandalize the 5G phone masks. There's all sorts of things. So I would argue that based on what we know from the research so far, Some conspiracy theories, they don't matter so much, but other conspiracy theories can have real harms. And we need to do a lot more research to understand what those harms are as well, and then what to do about them, which is the million dollar question. 
Let's move right into that. This is like the part two of the conversation we need to be having, because I think now that we know what makes people vulnerable to conspiracy theories, and we know the conditions that people want control over and the dangers of letting certain theories go unchecked, it becomes, what do we do about them? You're absolutely right. It's the million dollar question. And I think there's a few layers to that. And one of which is looking inwardly first at ourselves, because you mentioned sometimes we're not even aware that we are being influenced by conspiracy theories. How do we, how do I make sure that I am not contributing to the spread of a conspiracy theory? Are there questions that we can ask ourselves before we share a story on social media, for example? What are things that we can do first for ourselves? before we tackle the crazy uncle who seems to be, you know, whatever, like following all these theories out there. Yeah, well, it's very, very difficult because information landscape, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is extremely complex and varied. And there's information coming at people from all different sources, people they know, the media, television, etc. There's so much information and the sources of all of those pieces of information are very, very different. And it's difficult for me to say exactly what people should do about that. But I guess one obvious thing that people can do is really sort of step back and before you share any information like this and even before you even think about like retweeting or even showing it to somebody else, think carefully about the claim that's being made in this piece of information. Does it sound credible? Does it sound reasonable based on other things that you know? And exactly who is the source of this information as well? Where is it coming from? And I think it's very, very difficult sometimes to be able to differentiate between a credible source of information and something that is not credible. But I would suggest that it's really important that people do take a step back and take their time. And rather than that kind of knee-jerk reaction, which we've all experienced at one point or another, to just quickly like click on that link and share it with somebody because it sounds so interesting and so true. And especially if it's something that I guess supports something that you would believe in the first place, if it's something that reinforces an existing attitude, then you're more likely to want to share that with other people. But I would say definitely just take a step back and think about what this information is telling you and who exactly is saying it to you. I love that. I had actually pulled up an article from the European Union who had suggested asking, and I'm curious if these make sense to you then, like, one, check the author, who's writing this and why? Do they have recognized qualifications? Do they have verifiable facts and evidence? Or are they a self-proclaimed expert who's posting this on YouTube, for example? The second one is check the source of that information, not just the author, but is the source reliable and reputable, right? The source has been quoted by several reputable media outlets backed by many scientists and independent fact-checking websites versus a source being shared by self-proclaimed experts. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is check the tone and style. Is it balanced and fair or is it sensationalist and one-dimensional? You know, Does the author actually explore the nuances and go into acknowledging their own limits of information and have a good factual tone? Or do they say this is the only possible truth? Do they say, you know, we're just going to keep raising questions instead of providing answers? Is it emotionally charged in terms of the tone of this? Are those good questions in your view to be asking ourselves? 
Yes, I think so, definitely. And I kind of, I touched on a couple of them when I didn't mention that you've just mentioned now is the tone of the piece. And one very, very common feature of this sort of conspiracy, I guess, material and and fake news is that you do find this very kind of one-sided, sensationalist sort of tone. And often even the website or the post will look different visually. It will contain, you know, more colour, bolder, letters, you know, various features that you can try to look out for. But again, it's not a a one size fits all thing. But often the more sort of factual, correct information will be a little bit more balanced. And it will even try to actively kind of refute the conspiracy theory, which is sometimes potentially problematic, because if you say what it is, then you're kind of reinforcing it at the same time. But a lot of the conspiracy theory material will not have this same balance. I suppose it will just go in with this more sensationalist thing. So, yeah, I would argue um, that people should try to look out for all of these things from an individual perspective so they don't go ahead and just share this information with others. Uh, The lawyer in me really loves all of those tips because I think I've seen, you know, in myself, especially this week when you're trying to, you know, parse through all of the news that's coming at you so fast or all of the facts. And I have never loved facts as much as I have in these past four years, just actual facts and science and things like that, that I taken for granted for most of my life. But, you know, those tips seem so practical and so real for us, right? When we you're doing that internal work first and checking yourself before you retweet something or before you repost something, or, you know, you start your group text about what you just heard. But what can you do if that's coming from other people then, especially those people that you know, and not necessarily the faceless internet strangers, right? Which you could argue with all day long about their point of views through screens, right? Let's talk about that crazy uncle or, you know, the good friend that you have such a great relationship with. And then suddenly she texts you something or shares something and you're like, whoa, where did this come from? I mean, is this something, especially if that is a relationship that you're, you know, interested in maintaining, how do you address that with them? Is that something you feel you can talk them out of? Is that even worth it? Mm, Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And again, it's very difficult because you're dealing with somebody that you know extremely well and they may or may not have talked to you about these sorts of things before. It might come as a shock to you, it might not. And a lot of the time when people believe these sorts of conspiracy theories, they believe them quite strongly. If they're happy to sit down and talk to you about them, then this is something that's a belief that they probably hold on to quite firmly. And so it'll be very, very difficult for you as an individual, even when you know them very well, to be able to persuade them otherwise. But I think there are things that you can do. And these are sorts of questions that I'm asked a lot. And again, it's not sort of the area of research that I do myself. I'm much, much better at being able to understand why people believe conspiracy theories as opposed to what to actually do about them. But I think there are things that people can do. And the first one is to simply listen and don't ridicule this person. That's extremely tempting to do, especially if you think that if you personally believe that these ideas are quite crazy, then it might be a natural reaction to want to just talk to that person and say, hey, you know, stop the crazy. This is beliefs are ridiculous. I don't want to hear them. That's likely to backfire in a lot of cases because, again, this person believes in this 
conspiracy theory or in different conspiracy theories quite strongly. So ridiculing them is likely to just alienate them further. So they might, instead of um, wanting to open up to you, just completely close off again and potentially get even further into the conspiracy theory because they just feel more alienated. But going back to some of the strategies that we were talking about earlier about how to spot facts and how to, I guess, identify what's the truth from the conspiracy theory online, this is something that you could potentially use with an individual that you know quite well to sort of turn that around and ask them to think about these things as well. And the reason why I mentioned that is because a lot of people who believe in conspiracy theories do quite strongly also feel that others in the dark, they're the sheep, they don't know what the truth is, but they themselves are the critical thinkers. They're the ones that are doing the research. They're the ones that know the truth and everybody else doesn't. So one potential strategy might be to appeal to the importance of critical thinking for that person. If they feel, you know, they're the defender of the truth, they're the one that's going out, they're doing the research, then ask them about their research, sort of, you know, where has this come from? Where have you found this information? Show me your research. And then you might be able to talk to that person about the sources of the information that they're relying on and work through that with them. Maybe these sources aren't the best sources. And then you can kind of, so you're appealing to this importance of critical thinking and turning that around and trying to get them to sort of correct their information seeking behavior so that then in future, they might be more likely to look in the right places. And then they might be ultimately more likely to abandon the conspiracy theory. That would be one thing that could work. I'm not sure, but I think it would be worth trying. I like that because, you know, the question also then is, and I really appreciate that you said not to like make fun of them, mm-hmm. but there are times, and I know in one of your talks online, you had mentioned this idea that sometimes people hold contradictory conspiracy theories as both true. And when you're looking at that from outside, you're just like, are you crazy? Like what? They completely conflict. I don't understand. And that would be my natural way to go about it, which is wrong. It sounds like. Could you walk us through that example you gave about people believing Osama bin Laden is both alive and dead? Yes. Well, I think the basic sort of bottom line of that finding is that people will entertain different conspiracy theories at the same time, even if they contradict each other. And yeah, that seems like an odd thing to do, to believe that someone's dead and alive at the same time doesn't make any sense. But I guess we're not necessarily saying that they firmly believe both of those things at the same time, but merely they're so mistrustful of the official explanation that they're prepared to entertain these other two options, even though together they might sound a bit ridiculous. So the idea is that People will entertain the idea that, say, Osama bin Laden's dead or he's still alive somewhere, as long as they also quite strongly have the belief that there is just something that isn't correct. There's something about the official story that doesn't sound right and we can't really trust that story. So if those two ideas are consistent with this underlying idea, I suppose, then they kind of make a bit more sense going together. Does that make sense? Yeah. In some weird way it does. Cause I think we heard that, or we've heard that around voter fraud in this election, like that there's people have said both that, and Sarah, I'm thinking about the representative yesterday who was saying that I have no proof of voter 
fraud. Yet I believe that voter fraud exists in every election. So she believes that both it didn't happen and it did happen, which was very, and first when I was hearing that, it was very hard for me to understand. But I think it goes to both what you believe in this current moment in one way and what you believe to be true generally. And you feel like you don't have, there's something wrong with the official story either way. So... Yeah, I think that's it. They just don't quite believe the official story. So something might be happening. They might not know exactly what. And it also, it almost might not matter exactly what the details are, as long as you can come up with different explanations for the reason that, for the, I guess, fact that something just is wrong. So you're prepared to entertain these mutually contradictory explanations because you believe in general that there's just something that's not quite right. And I don't even know if it was a question so much as, you know, you can use this idea of discontent to drive your search for truth or the satisfying of that itch that you have because you have this gut feeling that something's not right, whether it's voter fraud or whatever else, that you want to keep searching for some truth and you're willing to try on different theories about what makes the most sense to satisfy that internal sense that it's not right, something's not right. Yes, I agree. And I guess one of the biggest predictors of whether or not people will believe in conspiracy theories, either specific ones or more generally, is just this generalized mistrust, I suppose. So you just don't feel that you can trust the people around you, governments, neighbors, friends, whoever. If you have that kind of feeling of mistrust, then you're more likely to, yeah, search for this information, look for these conspiracy theories, try to work out what's going on, but not always looking in the right places. This might be a totally illogical leap, but it, it at least reminded me of this idea that the antidote to addiction, for example, one of them has been shown to be strong relationships. And if the people who are most vulnerable, if the biggest predictor of someone being vulnerable to conspiracy theories is a sense of mistrust, Raising, for example, the next generation of children to be, to have trust, to have faith, to have these relationships feels like it might be a powerful way to protect ourselves and our communities from this sense of conspiracy theory. You know, especially because if part of believing in this conspiracy theories is the sense of belonging to this group, I have this information, I have this insider information, and I belong to this group of people who's leading the charge on uncovering Pizzagate for example. Is there room, I wonder, I don't know if there's an answer yet to this, but of doubling down on this sense of community and relationships so that people feel like they belong, that they believe that they have people they trust, so they don't need to live in isolation and mistrust and conspiracy theory seeking. Yeah, I agree. I think that ultimately, to if you want to try to get, a, get rid of conspiracy theories or at least reduce conspiracy theorizing significantly, then you have to try to address these fundamental needs, these psychological needs that people have. And until you're able to do that, it's just going to be a case of trying to debunk this conspiracy theory, which has just popped up over here, or trying to deal with this conspiracy theory that's just happened because this event happened in the world. So you're kind of dealing with these separate things, but not ultimately dealing with the psychological needs that people have, which are still unsatisfied. So when the next conspiracy theory comes along, they might just believe in that as well. So I think ultimately that should be the aim to try and address 
some of these issues of deep mistrust and feelings of powerlessness, inequality, and all of these things. But of course, that's easier said than done. We might be able to deal with one of them at a time, but then you're faced with a situation like dealing with a conspiracy theory, dealing with them one at a time. There needs to be a bigger approach, but I think that's very, very difficult and something that a social psychologist like me just simply can't do. (laughs) But yeah, I totally agree. Ultimately, the best solution would be to try to address these fundamental psychological needs that attract people to conspiracy theories in the first place. I really like that because I think that, you know, so often we look for that quick response, right? And the sort of the quick fix, the band-aid to so many issues that we have. And the fact that there are deeper needs that need to be met is so important to keep in mind when we're really trying to go to the root cause of things, because I think we don't often enough. And I really see it as paired with, you know, Sarah, to your point about what should we be giving our kids and focusing on the skill of critical thinking too, right? When you're pairing community and faith and trust with the ability to really take something and say like, well, why? And not in a mistrust way, but in a really like open, curious, I want to understand why this is the case. You know, like science experiments, I keep coming back to facts and science. I don't know. I just hugging those things tight to me right now. But I really see those as as pairs in a way or or, um, working together. And is that sort of what you see as well? Yeah, I definitely do. And I think that the idea of trying to promote critical thinking in people at a very, very early age is going to be a really important piece of the puzzle in dealing with conspiracy theories. And I think that some researchers that I know are actually trying to do this and devise educational programs so that children are able to spot misinformation more quickly because they help them to develop the critical tools to be able to trust scientific information, trust the facts and not look necessarily for these pieces of information in the form of conspiracy theories. So yeah, I would very much agree that these, this is very important. We had spoken with someone actually, a man named Colin Seal, who runs a program called Think Law, and they have curriculum that they want to implement in public schools across the country in the United States. And, you know, in order to give critical thinking skills and give kids access to that, regardless of the, you know, in the United States, our education system is so closely tied to the socioeconomics of the neighborhood. So his whole purpose is to see if we can teach critical thinking skills and give those skills to kids all across the country, regardless of access to good education. So I think that that's really interesting too, for us to think about as parents, you know, and giving our kids the ability to think critically and question without diving into wholeheartedly different theories that explain the same thing and being able to differentiate that, which then leads me to totally leap back to a question I forgot about Misasha had me listen to this really interesting podcast where they talked about some of these things. And in it, they said that people are more likely to believe something that they see written on a meme that has a picture on it versus words. The windmills example. So like the example given was windmills were invented in Persia. And if you put those words on a black background, people are less likely to believe that than if you put those words on a picture of a windmill. And it doesn't even have to be a windmill from Persia, right? Or, you know, it just is a windmill and people associate the image of the thing with the words being true, which I was fascinated by. 
I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or sort of the, especially through social media now where it's so easy, you know, on Instagram to put up a picture and put some words on it and then have people repost that. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. No, that is really, really interesting. It is certainly the case that certain types of information more persuasive and than others, and you can deliver the same information through different media and it can have different effects. Um, So yeah, there's some interesting empirical work to do there, I think, with respect to conspiracy theories and fake news and how persuaded people are by visual memes versus written ones. What else have we not asked about what makes people vulnerable to conspiracy theories? Or what else do we and our listeners need to know for ourselves and for society at large, really, at this stage? One other factor that often comes up in conversations that I have with people, whether or not there are age and gender differences in terms of believing in conspiracy theories. And in terms of gender, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of difference in terms of whether or not a person is likely to believe in conspiracy theories, we don't really find any gender differences, which I think is interesting because if you see most of the people who you would, I guess, classify as a conspiracy theorist, they tend to be men, middle-aged white men, usually. And watching the coverage on TV the other day, that certainly seems to be what it looked like. But in the studies that we've run, and we just tend to take general population samples of people and ask them these questions about, you know, do you agree with this conspiracy theory? We don't tell them that we think they're conspiracy theories. But we don't find any gender difference, which I think is quite interesting. And also in terms of age, older people tend to believe conspiracy theories less than younger people. So there's that kind of inverse correlation. So I'm often asked about those sorts of small demographic factors, and that's what we tend to find. I find that interesting, though, about the age. I would have thought older people would be more vulnerable, especially in this day and age of misinformation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We always find that there's this inverse correlation, but we don't necessarily, at the moment, we haven't done a lot of measurement with very young people or people who are much older. So there could be differences at the far ends of the age continuum that we haven't explored. But in general population samples where people are sort of from 18 to say 65 or whatever, we don't sort of, we definitely sort of see that older people are less likely to believe conspiracy theories than the younger ones. I would be so fascinated to see if the data from studies after 2020 and onward, or even from 2016 onward, changes at all. Because I do feel like the shift in how people consume information and how older people are consuming information may have changed. And I'm just curious if that remains steady or if that changes over the next sort of decade. Yeah, I think that would be very interesting. But I do think that if the sort of the age that you're looking at is 18 to 65, that might be true. And then if you go above 65, I think you get into everyone's crazy uncle like range of belief, maybe. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know. And it's, yeah, there's a bit of a limitation of the research that we don't tend to study these extremely strong conspiracy believers. Mm. And our samples are a little bit more, I guess, yeah, they're just general population samples. So we miss quite a lot of people that would be interesting to study. And a lot of individuals just don't want to participate in psychology (laughs) studies. Do you do these sample studies mainly in the UK or do you do them globally? And do you see any difference if you do international studies between countries? 
Mm, yeah, that's a good question. We tend to study either yeah UK general public or US samples as well. And I've also been involved in research from other kind of Western European countries as well. There isn't a great deal of cross-cultural research or comparative research on conspiracy theories. And I've been involved in some projects which do suggest that there are some differences across some cultures, but it's that research is in its infancy. And again, it's sort of a lot of time it's difficult to compare. If you met, have one measure in one country, does it measure the same thing if you pick it up and move it somewhere else? But um, yeah, most of the research that I've done is in typical general population, UK, USA type sample of people. I would love at some stage to see countries that have more, quote, what Americans like to call socialist tendencies, where, you know, you have that safety net, Canada, Japan, UK, like you, where you don't go, you know, bankrupt for getting cancer or that sort of stuff versus countries that are more vulnerable and don't have the safety nets met. Well, it was great chatting with you. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. No, it's been really nice to chat with you as well. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 